How's it going, folks? Welcome to the show. We're currently going through a synchronized study of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Last time, we went over the public ministry of John the Baptist, who was prophesied in Isaiah to cry out in the wilderness, preparing the way for the Lord. John was also prophesied in Malachi chapter 3 to be the one who God would send out before he sent his Messiah. John was called John the Baptist because he baptized people in the Jordan River, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of their sins. And John was bold about it too, folks. I mean, he even rebuked the king for having an affair with his brother's wife. And John used the prophecy in Isaiah as his authority while telling people, I only baptize in water, but there is one coming after me who will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. And all of Jerusalem went out to see this guy. And then one day, Jesus himself showed up to be baptized. And this took John by surprise, because the whole point of John's baptism was to symbolize the repenting of one's sins and having them washed away. But what in the world did Jesus have to repent of? He never sinned a day in his life. And John even said something to them that day. He said, well, look, what's this all about? If anything, you should be baptizing me. But Jesus said, permit it just now. For this is the proper way for both of us to perform completely all that is right. John didn't understand, but Jesus had been prophesied all throughout the Old Testament that he would not only offer up his life to pay the penalty for all the sin of mankind. John knew about that part. But what John didn't know was that it also prophesied that Jesus would allow himself to be numbered with the sinners. One of Jesus' prophetic titles was the kinsman redeemer. The baptism of Jesus was his public statement to the world and to God that he chose to be one of us and to be the one who would represent the human race to God and ultimately pay the penalty for all of mankind's transgressions. John didn't fully understand but went ahead with the water baptism anyway at Jesus' request and as Jesus came up out of the water the Holy Spirit came down, moving like a dove. And it came into Jesus as the visible sky was torn open, and a voice came out of it saying, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now folks, something else might have taken place during this event that we didn't get into last time because it's not directly talked about in those passages of Scripture. Well, actually it's not addressed anywhere specifically in the Bible, but it is one of those areas of discussion that Bible junkies love to ponder about. And it's really important. Uh, I want to share some of this stuff with you here, but first I wanted to make it perfectly clear that what we're about to talk about is not biblically recorded fact, but educated speculation based upon the biblical facts that we do have. All right? Just wanted to add that disclaimer there in case I'm wrong. All right, most conservative Bible scholars believe that the moment the Holy Spirit entered into the body of Jesus Christ at his baptism, that it was at that precise moment that Jesus came into what Bible scholars call his full knowledge. What do they mean by his full knowledge? What does that mean? Well, in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 5, verse 8, there's a very strange verse. A very strange verse. It says, although Jesus was the Son of God, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Jesus learned? He learned obedience? I thought Jesus never sinned. Uh, why would he have to learn obedience if he never had a problem with sin? What, what does this mean? 
And besides, I thought Jesus was God. I thought God knew everything. How does one who knows everything learn? Well, you got to remember, Jesus Christ was the human incarnation of one of the three identities who in a higher dimension exists as one God. We call that the Trinity. The word Trinity doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible. It's just a word that Bible scholars have been using for the past 2,000 years because until recently we didn't understand the physics of hyperspaces or spaces with more than three dimensions. God exists in more than three dimensions. And I don't want to get into all that here. We cover that exhaustively in sessions one and two if you're interested. But anyway, God is one God. But he exists hyperdimensionally in three persons. And it's always been that way. But 2,000 years ago, one of those three chose to separate himself from the other two when he entered into our three-dimensional space-time domain and became a human. Now, that's biblical facts. So far, we're on solid ground. But here's where the speculation begins. How much did he lose by becoming a human? How much did he lose by becoming a human? John chapter 1 says that before... He was one with God before time and space. It says he was with the Creator and was the Creator, getting into his hyperdimensional attributes. But he apparently stripped himself of all that to become a human. During that transition, how much did he lose? We do know he lost the ability to be everywhere at once. Jesus, the human, had to walk from point A to point B. So he didn't exist everywhere. We can assume, even though the scriptures don't say, I think it's very safe to assume that he lost his ability to speak. Did he come out of his mother's womb knowing how to talk? I don't think so. When he's in the manger, all we have recorded there are the words of Mary, Joseph, and the shepherds. Not a peep out of Jesus. A couple of years later, the Bible still doesn't record any words from him. All we have during that period are the words of the Magi, the wise men, when they visited Mary and Joseph's home to present gifts. So like any other human, Jesus had to learn how to speak. Now to me, that is really weird and incredible. The one who spoke the universe into existence, the one who said, let there be light. He became a man and had to be taught by humans how to talk. The one who spoke to Moses from the burning bush, who authored and dictated the book of Genesis, 2,000 years later became a man. It had to be taught by humans how to read the book of Genesis. Now, this is where you connect the dots, folks. If he wasn't everywhere at once, if he had to be taught how to talk, if he had to be taught how to read, then he wasn't all-knowing. At least not yet. Now, all throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, from his baptism onward, the Bible says that he knew all that was in men's hearts. He knew the intimate details of a person's history. After he spoke with the woman at the well, we'll get into that next time, she ran home screaming, he knew me and told me of everything I've ever done. The Bible also records from his baptism onward that he's all-powerful. He heals the sick, raises the dead, controls the weather, walks on water. And he even has the ability to alter solid or liquid matter into anything he wants. When Jesus encounters demons, they are literally terrified of him. But today, when we get to John chapter 2, verse 11, we're going to find out that the recorded miracle that Jesus performs there was his very first miracle. 
So he didn't grow up with supernatural abilities. If he had, then he really wouldn't have been able to say that he knew what it was like to be human. And that was the whole point, folks. Remember, he's one of us. He chose to be one of us. And when he spent his first moments in the manger, only a few hours old, did he know who he was? And did he know why he was here? Could he remember being with God the Father prior to nine months ago, prior to his conception? Or was his memory and cognitive thinking just like everyone else's is when they're a few hours old? The Bible doesn't say, but if he couldn't be everywhere at once, and if the miracle of Jesus recorded in John 2.11 was his first miracle, as it says it was, we know that, and if he had to learn things, like the book of Hebrews says, we know that, and if he had to be taught how to speak and read, then I think it's very safe to assume that all of the attributes of God were stripped from him by becoming a three-dimensional human. We hear all kinds of legends and myths about the childhood miracles of Jesus, but none of that is in the Bible. Now, there is one attribute of God that Jesus did retain through his transition into humanity. He was sinless. There are several places in the New Testament that says that he never lost his holiness. His real father was God and not man. So Jesus' DNA wasn't impaired with the genetic defect known as sin. Jesus never committed a sin a single day in his life, and this probably served as the greatest sign of proof to him that he was who his parents told him he was. He grew up around other kids. We know Cousin John was one. His brothers James and Jude were others. Mary had other children after Jesus was born. James and Jude were Jesus' brothers, neither of which, by the way, believed that Jesus was the Messiah until after his resurrection. Eventually, both of them went on to write books for the New Testament. James wrote one, and Jude wrote one. Jesus' brothers. Or I guess you could say half-brothers. Jesus and them had the same mother, but different fathers. So Jesus grew up around these people, and it's only human nature for kids to be disobedient, or at least desire to be disobedient. But Jesus didn't have any of that in him. So I'm sure he stuck out like a sore thumb. And with this awareness growing from infancy into childhood and then the teen years, always being tempted, always being given the opportunity, but never even once giving in, never doing the wrong thing, never saying the wrong thing, never ever giving in to a selfish impulse of any kind, anywhere, at any time, for as long as he lived. Now, folks, this is obviously not a human quality. So being self-aware of this huge difference between himself and everyone else as he grew up, I'm sure that made it very easy for him to accept what he had been told by his parents and his Aunt Elizabeth about what really happened during his birth, about how he was conceived while his mother was still a virgin. And being a Jew, he was brought up understanding the Scriptures, the Old Testament. And they have a lot to say about his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection, and his future rule over the universe. And he was wise beyond his years, but that wasn't because he was all wise. It's because he was sinless kind of makes you wonder about how much intelligence and wisdom could the human mind hold if it was completely free from sin and totally focused on the way things really are and not focused on the way Satan would have to see them. So yes, Jesus was wise beyond his years, but he wasn't the all-wise, all-knowing, all-seeing God of creation. Not at first. He stripped himself of all that when he became human. When he was a kid, a teenager, and even as he walked up to John to be baptized, I really don't think his own personal memories went back any further than being in his mother's arms as a kid. 
But all of that changed once the Holy Spirit entered into him at his baptism. And that's what Bible scholars mean when they say that they believe or speculate that it was at his baptism that Jesus came into his full knowledge. For 30 years until he was baptized, he always knew who he was before because of his prayer life, because of his relationship with God the Father, and because of the education he received from his parents and the scriptures. But it wasn't until another member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, came into him at his baptism that he personally remembered as though a link that connected him to the other two members of the Trinity, which was severed at his conception, had been restored. It was at that moment that he personally remembered being outside and transcending the universe. He personally remembered creating it. He personally remembered creating the angels and humanity. He remembered Satan's rebellion and Adam's fall. He remembered Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and Elijah. It all came back to him. He personally remembered everything. He was still the human being that he was before for the past 30 years, but now with that personal experience, he had the personal experience of who he was before then. And it was at that moment that he personally remembered you. And every prayer you've ever prayed or ever will pray, and every tear you've ever shed or will shed, and every temper tantrum you've ever had or will have. He remembered creating you personally. Psalm 139 verse 13 says he formed your inward parts and knit you together in your mother's womb. And he remembered his passionate love for you that drove him down here to accomplish what he accomplished. It was then that he became all-knowing again, all-seeing again, and all-powerful again. You know, it's really something. We always talk about the amazing feat that Jesus achieved at the cross because of what that achievement accomplished for us. But we don't often think about what the transcendent second member of the Trinity of God gave up by becoming the three-dimensional man known as Jesus Christ. And even after Jesus regained his memory of who he was and regained all of his godly knowledge, wisdom, love, and power, he still remained a physical man walking around the earth. But he was God. And he had all of the power of God in that little 30-year-old human body walking the surface of our planet with human feet. It's absolutely incredible. Now that ends the speculation. Let's just stick to the facts now. It was after his baptism that he was compelled to spend some serious alone time with God the Father. So that's why he went out into the desert to be alone. He was in the desert for 40 days without food. Satan made a personal appearance to tempt him. He tempted him to use his supernatural power to turn the stones into bread to relieve his hunger. Jesus fought back with scripture and said, Man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Satan then transported him onto a high pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem and said, throw yourself down, for the scriptures say the angels will take care of you. Then Jesus said, well, the scriptures also say, do not put God to a foolish test. Then Satan transported Jesus up high and showed him some kind of advanced visual display, showing him all of the kingdoms of the earth. And Satan said, all of this has been given to me, and I give it to whomever I will. Prostrate yourself down before me and worship me, and it will all be yours. But Jesus said, Be gone, Satan, for you shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you worship. And Satan ran away, and the angels came and took care of Jesus and ministered to him. And that's where we left off last time, folks. Now, while all of this was going on, while Jesus spent the 40 days in the desert and maybe spent some time recuperating afterward, John continued his ministry. 
But now he's telling people about what he saw during Jesus' baptism. He's now using that as part of his personal testimony. So let's get started here, starting at John chapter 1, verse 32. It says, John gave further evidence, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending like a dove out of heaven, and it dwelt on him never to depart. And I didn't know him or recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, Upon him whom you shall see the Spirit descend and remain, that one is he who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And I've seen that happen. I actually did see it. And my testimony is that this is the Son of God. Again the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked along and said, Look, there's the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard John say this, so they started following Jesus. But Jesus turned around, and as he saw them following him, he said, What are you looking for? What is it that you wish? And they answered him, Rabbi, which translated his teacher. Rabbi, where are you staying? Jesus said, Come and see. So they went and they saw where he was staying and they remained with him that day. It was about the tenth hour. That's four o'clock in the afternoon, folks, on our clock. One of those two who followed Jesus, because of what John said, was Andrew. Andrew was Simon Peter's brother. Andrew sought out and found his brother Simon and said to him, We've discovered the Messiah which translated means the Christ, the Anointed One. Andrew then brought Simon to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which translated is Peter, which means stone. The next day Jesus desired to go into Galilee and found Philip and said to him, Join me as my attendant and follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, of the same city as Andrew and Peter. Philip sought out Nathanael and told him, Hey, we've discovered the one Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote about, Jesus from Nazareth, the legal son of Joseph. Nathanael answered him, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip replied, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said concerning him, See, here is an Israelite indeed, a true descendant of Jacob, in whom there is no guile, nor deceit, nor falsehood or duplicity. Nathanael said to Jesus, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip ever called you, when you were still under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, for whatever reason, folks, this particular response makes a huge, huge impact on Nathanael. We don't know why. All we can do is guess. Nathanael could have been sitting under a fig tree earlier that day, a couple of hours before Philip called him. The fig tree could have been a spot where Nathaniel spent his daily devotional time in the scriptures throughout the years. It might have been a place where he said many a prayer. Or it could have been a spot where he mourned over the loss of a loved one. He could have buried someone he loved under a fig tree. It could have been a spot in which a very personal thing happened. I, I don't know. I mean, he, maybe he got his first kiss under it. Who knows? The theories are endless, but whatever was going on and whenever it happened... It was something that a stranger couldn't have known about. And Philip asked Jesus point blank, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip ever called you, when you were still under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathaniel answered, teacher, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus replied, because I said to you, I saw you beneath the fig tree, you believe me? You'll see greater things than this. Then he said to him, I assure you, most solemnly I tell you all, you shall see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Folks, the Son of Man, from here on out, that's a phrase that becomes one of Jesus' titles 
Now, some folks try to make out like it contradicts the virgin birth, but it doesn't. The word man in the English makes it confusing in our vernacular because we think of the male sex. But in this context, it's used in the form of mankind or humanity. Mary was a human, and Jesus was her son, so he was the son of a human. In the Bible, the word man doesn't mean male, it means human. To give you an example, Genesis 1 verse 27 says God created man in his own image. Comma, male and female, he created them. So man is a plural word for human beings in general. Mary was a man, she was a female man. Today we say human. Mary was human and her son was human. So while one of Jesus' titles is the son of God to point out his deity and who his father really was, he's also given the title the son of man to remind us that he was human. But there's something else here that Jesus is alluding to. He said, you shall see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Well, what Jesus is alluding to are two separate prophecies. One prophecy focuses on the accomplishment of Jesus' first coming, and the second prophecy is focused on the accomplishment of Jesus' second coming. And in that statement that Jesus gave Nathaniel, he's combining both of them. Let's look at the first one back in Genesis 28, verse 12. There, Jacob is being given a dream, a small glimpse of some of the weird supernatural activity that takes place between our physical universe and heaven. In Genesis 28:12, it says, quote, He dreamed there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending upon it. And behold, the Lord stood over and beside Jacob and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your forefather, and the God of Isaac. I will give to you and to your descendants the land on which you are lying, and your offspring shall be as countless as the dust of the ground. And you shall spread abroad to the west and the east and the north and the south. And by you and your offspring shall all of the families of the earth be blessed. Well, four chapters later, Jacob's name is changed to Israel. Israel was a man, and he had a son named Joseph. Joseph had some children that, after 400 years, grew into a nation, a nation that called itself the Children of Israel. And after the exodus from Egypt and 40 years in the desert, they took under Joshua the Promised Land, which was the very land that Jacob was lying on when he had that dream where God said, By you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Eventually, Jesus was the ultimate offspring of Israel, through which all the families of the earth would be blessed. But then Jesus is also alluding to a second prophecy, which is in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. In that portion of Scripture, God's giving Daniel a sneak peek into the future. Jacob only got a glimpse of the supernatural world when he had his dream. But Daniel is actually being given more than a promise in a dream. He was transported through time and actually saw with his own eyes an event which from our standpoint hasn't happened yet. From God's perspective, it's already happened because time is a physical property that God created. So he can take Daniel outside his time period and temporarily put him in another time period that to us is still future. This is in Daniel chapter 7 verse 13. It says, quote, I saw in the night visions, and behold, on the clouds of the heavens came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. 
Now, folks, the Ancient of Days, earlier in the chapter, it gets defined. The Ancient of Days is Daniel's poetic title for God, since he's timeless. But notice Daniel says he saw on the clouds of the heavens come one like a son of man. He looked human. Daniel's like, what in the world is this? It's a man. It says, on the clouds of the heavens came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and kingdom that all peoples, all nations, and all languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one which shall not be destroyed. Folks, from our position in time, this hadn't happened yet, but it's going to happen because God transported Daniel into the future. And he saw it happen with his own eyes. I can't wait. But anyway... This is what Jesus is alluding to when he told Nathaniel, because I said to you, I saw you beneath the fig tree, you believe in me? You shall see greater things than this. Then he said to him, I assure you, most solemnly I tell you all, you shall see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. So anyway, Jesus now has four people following him around, taking part in his ministry. Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. Right now, they're still learning from him. There will eventually be twelve in all, but right now in the story there's just four. But then Jesus and his mother get an invitation to attend a wedding. So Mary goes to this wedding, Jesus goes with her, and he takes Andy, Pete, Phil, and Nate with him. John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited with his disciples to the wedding. Folks, when it says on the third day, that was the Jewish way of saying Tuesday. It was a common Jewish practice to hold a wedding on the third day of the week, what we would call Tuesday. And the reason for that was because of Genesis chapter 1. After God said, let there be light, and then separated the light from the darkness, he pronounced it good. And then it reads, evening and the morning were the first day. And then on the second day, it says he created the firmament and then separated the waters underneath from the waters above. But when God's finished, he doesn't pronounce it good. It just says that evening and the morning were the second day. But then on the third day, God moved the waters of the surface of the planet into places of standing so that dry land would appear, and he pronounced that good. And then he created plant life and vegetation, and then pronounced that good, all on the third day. Then days four through seven all have their own creative work, and each time God calls it good. The second day is the only day in the week in which God didn't say it was good. But on the third day, he called it good twice. So it became Jewish custom to have your wedding on the third day of the week, because it was the day of double blessing. There's something else that you'll probably notice here in the narrative. From here on out, there's no mention of Joseph, Jesus' legal father, Mary's husband. And the Bible doesn't say why. Uh, the Bible left an 18-year gap in Jesus' life. When he was 12, we get that story in Luke, when Jesus stayed behind at the temple during the Passover festival. Mary and Joseph searched all over the place for him. Joseph was clearly present for that. But that's the last we see of it. After that, there's an 18-year gap, and the narrative picks up when Jesus presents himself for baptism at age 30. And there's no mention of Joseph either there or at any time afterwards. But Mary does get mentioned several times, and when she does, Joseph is conspicuously absent. The prominent view for why that is, is that somewhere in that 18-year gap, Joseph died. There seems to be public records and other ancient writings to confirm that. And that's the view that I hold, but nobody really knows for certain because the Bible doesn't say what happened to Joseph. I only bring it up here because if that's true, then Jesus, either in his teens or his twenties, 
had to suffer the pain of losing a close loved one. And he couldn't bring him back from the dead because Jesus didn't have his supernatural abilities until after he was baptized. Anyway, back to the text. Verse 2. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples, and when the wine was all gone, the mother of Jesus said to him, they've got no more wine. They have no more wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what is that to you and me? The English doesn't translate very well here. It almost sounds like Jesus was rebuking her by calling her woman. But in the original language, it's a term of caring and endearment. To put it in our vernacular, a more accurate translation would have probably been, dear woman or my dear lady. They were invited guests to this wedding. They weren't the hosts. And Mary said to Jesus, they have no more wine. And in the original Greek, her statement is one of urgency. Not so much of panic, but one of urgency. But what's the emergency? She's not the host. And Jesus said, dear woman, or my dear lady, what is that to you and me? My hour has not yet come. And this is the first of many times that Jesus will say, my hour has not yet come. He says it a lot. Every event of his ministry, from his public appearances, to miracles, debates, and even his arrest, every little moment is supernaturally timed. It was scheduled by Jesus himself before he came here. And at this point, nothing's really happened yet, at least not on a grand scale, other than Jesus' baptism. Jesus has picked out four disciples, but there have been no public displays of his power yet. No public debates with the Pharisees, no sermons, nothing. And because Jesus said to Mary, my hour has not yet come, that implies to me that Mary wasn't really worried about there not being any more wine. She wasn't the host. But because of the urgency of her statement, and in combination with Jesus' response, it implies to me that Mary was anxious to get things started. She's been living with the memory of all that happened 30 years ago. The visit from Gabriel, the virgin birth, the testimony of the shepherds, the visit from the famous magi bringing gifts. But since then, there's been nothing for 30 years. But now, Jesus has been baptized. God has spoken from heaven and declared him to be his son. He's been back from the 40 days in the desert being tempted. He's picked out four disciples, and now they're at this big public event. So Mary's excited. It's a wedding, and she's probably thinking, hey, this is the perfect opportunity, son. They have no more wine. Not yet, my dear woman. My hour has not yet come. But what's really interesting is even after he tells her that, verse 5 says that his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, to me, this is the weirdest part of the story. She tells Jesus, there's no more wine. Jesus says, so what? My hour has not yet come. And then she tells the servants. She wasn't the host, but she tells the servants that whatever he says to you, do it. Now, when Jesus told her, my hour has not yet come, in this case, he means it's not time to go public yet. So he performs a miracle, but makes it a hidden miracle, a private one. Only Mary, the servants, and the disciples knew what happened. Let's keep reading. Verse 6 says, there were six water pots of stone standing there as the Jewish custom of purification demanded, holding 20 to 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. Then Jesus said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the manager of the feast, to the one presiding the banquet. So they took him some. And when the manager tasted the water just now turned into wine, not knowing where it came from, though the servants that had drawn the water knew, he called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone else serves his best wine first, and when everyone has drunk freely, then he serves that which is not so good. But you've kept back the good wine until now. 
This beginning of miracles, this first of his signs, Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After that, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and disciples, and they stayed there a few days. All right, folks, it says that this was Jesus' very first miracle, and there was never anything random about Jesus' actions. So what's the significance behind all this? It was six empty water pots of stone that were filled with water at Jesus' prompting, and the water was turned into wine. And only Mary, the disciples, and the servants knew about it. Why did Jesus choose for this to be his first miracle? Well, all throughout the Bible, the number six always signifies something that is incomplete. God created the heavens and the earth in six days. It wasn't until the seventh day that he rested from his work and set everything in motion. And I'm sure you've heard that the mark of the beast in Revelation is 666. That means in spite of his claim to be our Messiah, he's incomplete, incomplete, incomplete. So the number six signifies something that is incomplete, and that's the way it's represented all throughout the Bible. Jesus' first miracle involved six water pots of stone. Not silver, not gold. Nothing that represents deity, royalty, or even redemption. Just stone. And they were six empty water pots of stone. But Jesus told the servants to fill them up with water. All throughout the Bible, water represents two things. Cleansing, but more specifically, the Holy Spirit. Remember, John the Baptist was baptizing people in the Jordan River with water. The water represented the cleansing of their sins and a future baptism by the Holy Spirit. He told people, I only baptize in water, but Jesus will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. And what wine symbolizes isn't obvious until we get to the Lord's Supper later on. And we'll find out there that wine represents Jesus' voluntary shed blood. So the symbolism of Jesus' first miracle symbolizes and models us and our transformation. We are incomplete. We're empty. We're made of stone. But when filled with the Holy Spirit, we're washed and cleansed and covered under the blood of Jesus Christ, the good wine. And once that happens, folks, we belong to Jesus Christ. And one of the New Testament titles for those who belong to Jesus is the Bride. The Bride of Christ. No wonder Jesus chose for this miracle to take place at a wedding. Because it's at that moment that we become the Bride of Christ. For us, that's a miracle. And it's the beginning of miracles. But it's not usually something that the world recognizes as a miracle. Only the servants of God and the disciples of Christ are aware of this miracle when it takes place. That's why Jesus only allowed the servants and those who believed in him, Mary and his disciples, to know what happened. Pretty neat. All right, now, folks, the following verses cover Jesus' big introduction into the world. This is his first public act as the prophesied Messiah, John chapter 2, verse 13. Now, the Jewish Passover feast was approaching, so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. There, he found in the temple enclosure those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers were sitting there, too, at their stands. Folks, this was taking place in the outer court of the temple, where non-Jews or Gentiles could pray. It was supposed to be a place of worship for the Gentiles. It was intended to be a quiet place for prayer and meditation. But instead, there's all this commercial traffic going on. 
Now, what they were doing wasn't really wrong. The Old Testament actually required the selling of those things so people could offer up sacrifices and so forth. But it was being done in the wrong place. You're supposed to take care of business outside. And judging from Jesus' reaction coming up here in a minute, they were also doing it for the wrong reasons. They weren't there to fulfill the Old Testament requirements. They weren't there to help bring people closer to God. They were there to make money. And Jesus knew what was in their hearts. By the way, I've noticed that more and more churches today are installing ATM machines either inside or near their sanctuaries. What in the world is going on? I guess the pastors and the deacons and the elders don't want anyone in their congregation with empty pockets when the offering plate gets passed around. That's the only reason I can think of. But uh, that's just par for the course, folks, of the times we're living in. There are more churches in the United States of America today than there have ever been before in U.S. history. New churches are popping up everywhere every day. And yet, with all of those new churches, the moral culture of America today is lower than it's ever been. you think it'd be the other way around, but it's not. Something's not right. The religious culture of today really isn't all that different from the way things were in Jesus' day, folks. It's almost creepy how similar things are. Not only did they have the completed Old Testament, which laid out every detail of Jesus' first coming, even the timing. They also had a temple and a priesthood with learned scholars galore. And with all of that, hardly anybody even knew Jesus was coming. The few who did know, the few who were expecting him, did so because they made it their own personal goal to know and understand the scriptures. When Mary and Joseph went to the temple 30 years earlier to dedicate their newborn baby to the Lord, two people were there waiting for them because of their own personal relationship with God and their own constant exploration of the scriptures. They knew he was coming. They were expecting him. A bunch of pagan magi even traveled a year's distance to find him. The religious leaders didn't go look for him. And here in John chapter 2, we have the temple in Jerusalem a man-made structure that God himself laid out the blueprints for in the Old Testament to be a symbolic model for human-to-God worship. And the religious leaders have turned it into a commercialized store with religious trappings. Verse 15. Jesus, having made a lash of cords, a whip, he drove them all out of the temple enclosure, both the sheep and the oxen, spilling and scattering the broker's money and upsetting and tossing around their stands. One guy, folks, Jesus Christ with a whip, one guy drove them all out. I wonder what this looked like. It appears that there wasn't any resistance. They got out of his way. I mean, he was angry enough that nobody tried to stop him, and he hadn't performed any public miracles yet. So nobody's really afraid of this guy because of his supernatural abilities. Nobody knew who this guy was, but he was tough enough to run them all out. And this was no small task. The outer court was huge. And they also had temple guards. What were they doing all? I mean, where were they? They're supposed to be there guarding the temple. Where were they? Were they absent for this? Or was Jesus' display of anger so severe that even the trained guards dared not to intervene? Verse 16. Then to them that sold the doves, Jesus said, Take these things away. Get them out of here. Make not my father's house a house of merchandise, a marketplace, or a sales shop. And his disciples remembered that it's written, 
the zeal, the fervor of love for your house will eat me up. I will be consumed with jealousy for the honor of your house. Folks, that's found in Psalm 69, verse 9. Now, in the next verse here in John, uh, the religious leaders show up, and when John the Gospel writer uses the phrase, the Jews, it's the Jewish religious leaders he's talking about, not the Jewish race. Verse 18, then the Jews retorted, what sign can you show us seeing you do these things? What indication can you give us as evidence that you have any justification and are commissioned to act this way? Jesus answered, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. They replied, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But Jesus had spoken of the temple, which was his body. When therefore he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this. And so they believed the scripture, and in the word Jesus had spoken. That's right, folks. Three days after he was buried, he rose on the third day. But when Jesus was in Jerusalem during the Passover feast, many believed in his name, identifying themselves with his party after seeing his signs, wonders, and miracles, which he was doing. But Jesus, for his part, did not trust himself to them, because he knew all men. And he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, and needed no evidence from anyone about them. For he himself knew what was in human nature. He could read men's hearts. All right, folks, so now Jesus starts his public ministry off with a bang. He causes a stir among the religious leaders of the temple, runs out all the merchants, which, by the way, they come back later. They come right back probably almost as soon as Jesus left because Jesus has to run them out again later. But now it says Jesus is performing miracles and producing signs and wonders that prove that he is who he says he is. But I think it's interesting that for some reason, John chose to leave out what those miracles were. I always wondered about that. Plenty of them get brought up later. But for right now, John chooses to simply state that Jesus, during the Passover feast, began performing signs and wonders to the extent that a lot of people chose to identify themselves as a member of his party. But Jesus knew their hearts. He knew that exactly three years later, they were going to kill him. Let's move on to John chapter 3, verse 1. There was a certain man among the Pharisees named Nicodemus, who was a ruler, a leader, and an authority among the Jews, who came to Jesus at night. A lot of folks think that because Nicodemus met Jesus at night, that it was some kind of secret meeting, a meeting in secret. And that might be true because Nicodemus was a Pharisee, after all. But the more likely reason is because the night was cool and the crowds were low. Why meet Jesus in the heat of the day while Jesus is surrounded by a mob of people waiting to see a miracle? And as we'll continue reading this narrative, you kind of get the impression that Nicodemus is there representing a group of Pharisees, or a faction of them. He's a learned scholar among the religious leaders. So he wants to get to the bottom of who this Jesus guy is. You know, ask some serious and direct questions. If you were Nicodemus with that goal, this was a conversation you would want to have in private, not for reasons of secrecy but to have a serious and direct conversation without any distractions. Verse 2. Nicodemus came to Jesus at night and said to him, Rabbi, we know and are certain that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs, these wonder works, these miracles, and produce the proofs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, I assure you, most solemnly I tell you, that unless a person is born again, he cannot ever see the kingdom of God. Wow. 
<laughs> Notice how Jesus gets right to the point. Nicodemus starts off diplomatically and was probably headed for a butt somewhere in there. Jesus knew where this was going, so he skips all the preliminary BS and gets right to the point. Unless a person is born again, he cannot ever see the kingdom of God. The original Greek word for see means a lot more than just visual perception, folks. It means to know, to be acquainted with, and to personally experience. Unless a person is born again, he cannot ever see, know, experience, or be acquainted with the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born again? Jesus answered, I assure you, most solemnly I tell you, unless a man is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot ever enter the kingdom of God. What is born of flesh is flesh, and what is born of the Spirit is spirit. Now watch out, folks. Your modern-day Pharisees will try to twist this statement of Jesus's and say that it proves that a person can't be saved unless they go under water baptism. They'll say, see, Jesus said unless a man is born of water and the Spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of God. Now, I've made it clear earlier, folks, that I'm not against water baptism. I'm in favor of it. I think its symbolism is profound. And I think people who are serious about dedicating their life to the Lord go under water baptism because they're going to get a lot out of it. It is a deeply emotional experience. But let's not twist the scriptures into saying things they don't say. John the Baptist said, I only baptize in water. Jesus will baptize you in the Holy Spirit, but I only baptize in water. In other words, this is nothing. It's not real. It's symbolic. And like we said earlier, water is symbolic of two things, cleansing and the Holy Spirit. It's the spiritual baptism that counts. So here Jesus is talking about being reborn in the Holy Spirit. It's a spiritual rebirth. We all have physical births, so all of us are born once. That's why Jesus used the phrase born again. You must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. And after Nicodemus asked Jesus to elaborate what he means by born again, Jesus elaborates. He says, unless a man is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot ever enter the kingdom of God. Unless a man has been cleansed of his sins and been baptized in the Holy Spirit, he can't ever enter the kingdom of God. What cleanses us of our sin? The water? No. Jesus Christ does that. So when Jesus says water, he's talking about the cleansing of one's sins. But there might be a double meaning behind the word water here. Before a mother gives birth to her baby, her water breaks. And the very first time that I ever read this verse, years and years and years ago, water baptism never even came into my mind. I first saw this as an idiom for physical birth. He's answering Nicodemus' question. How can a man be born twice? Jesus says, well, there's a physical birth and there's a spiritual birth. Unless a man is born physically and spiritually, he cannot ever enter the kingdom of God. How do I know that's what he means? Because that's what he said he means in the following verse. He said, what is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. That's the pattern of what Jesus is saying. That's the flow. When you try to force water baptism into verse 5, it screws up the flow of what he's saying. Verse 5 says, Unless a man is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot ever enter the kingdom of God. For what is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not at my telling you, you must all be born again. The wind blows and breathes where it wills, and though you hear its sound, you neither know where it comes or where it's going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered by asking, 
How can all of this be possible? Jesus replied, Are you the teacher of Israel and don't know these things? I assure you, most solemnly I tell you, we speak only of what we know. We have actually seen what we are testifying to, and still you do not receive our testimony. This is amazing, folks. Jesus is now including himself with all of the Old Testament prophets and speaking of them in the present tense. Moses, Elijah, Ezekiel, Isaiah. Jesus says, we, we speak only of what we know, present tense. We have actually seen what we are testifying to, and still you do not receive our testimony. Jesus is boldly declaring here that the concept of being spiritually reborn isn't new. Ezekiel chapter 36 holds a prophecy of Israel that started being fulfilled in 1948 and is still being fulfilled today and will completely be fulfilled after the Great Tribulation. And within that prophecy is the concept of being spiritually reborn. And it's just one of many places in the Old Testament where it talks about spiritual rebirth. Remember when Abraham's name used to be Abram? Abraham's name was originally Abram. In Genesis, God changes Abram's name to Abraham. In the Hebrew alphabet, they had a letter that was like our letter H that stood for the essence of something or the spirit of something. It was pronounced with a breath. When Abram was saved or reborn, the letter H was put in the middle of his name, Abraham. So the concept of a spiritual rebirth is all throughout the Old Testament. Nicodemus was a biblical scholar among the religious leaders. That's why Jesus scolds him a little bit for not understanding the concept of a spiritual rebirth. Jesus tells him, Are you the teacher of Israel and don't know these things? We speak only of what we know. We have actually seen what we are testifying to, and still you don't receive our testimony. Now, if I have told you of things that happen right here on the earth, and none of you believe me, then how? Can you believe me if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ever gone up to heaven, but there is one who has come down from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so must the Son of Man be lifted up in order that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. Folks, what in the world does that mean? Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. What kind of comparison is that? Why would Jesus compare himself to that? What's that all about? What's he talking about? It turns out the event that Jesus is referring to is found in Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. Let's uh, take a look at that just real quick to find out what he's talking about here. The time period of Numbers 21 takes place during Israel's wilderness wanderings. After God delivered Israel from the bondage of Egypt... They traveled on to Mount Sinai, and they lost their faith there while waiting for Moses to come down from the mountain. They got scared and planned to crawl back to Egypt, because even though they were slaves in Egypt, at least they had food. That was the attitude. So they built a golden calf. The golden calf was an Egyptian god. They were going to carry it in front of them on the way back to Egypt, so Ramses would see it and interpret that as a sign that was a peace offering of some kind saying that we've abandoned the God of Israel and now embrace a God of Egypt. Of course, Moses came back down from the mountain just in time, put a stop to all of this, lost his temper, broke the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments on the golden calf, and you know the story. Later on, as Moses led them to the Promised Land, the Israelites showed a lack of faith again. 
They were afraid to take the land because of the Nephilim they discovered there. So God said, okay, fine. Wander around the desert for 40 years and see how you like that. Maybe your kids will be more faithful than you guys. When they needed water, though, God did give them water. And whenever they were hungry, God sent them food from the sky that they called manna. The word manna is Hebrew for, what's this? Manna was very mysterious. A lot of people think it was some kind of bread or cake bread or whatever, but nobody really knows what it was. All we do know is that it was some form of sustenance that God sent from the sky, and uh, the Jews called it manna, which is Hebrew for, what's this? So it's during this time period, Numbers chapter 14, starting at verse 4, And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses, saying, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and we detest this light manna. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many Israelites died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a serpent of bronze and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a serpent of bronze and he put it on a pole. And if a serpent had bitten any man... When that man looks to the serpent of bronze, he lived. Once again, folks, God chooses to use symbolism to make a point concerning a much bigger reality. So let's look at this real carefully. All throughout the Bible, the serpent symbolizes the curse of sin, or specifically sin itself. The metal bronze was a metal that was specifically used in those days to withstand fire, and fire was symbolic of God's judgment. So, a serpent of bronze symbolized sin being judged by God. And God told Moses to put it on a pole so that anyone who looked at it would be saved. God uses symbolism. And this whole symbolic event was in anticipation of John chapter 3, verse 14. Jesus said, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert on a pole, so must the Son of Man be lifted up on the cross, in order that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. At first you kind of wonder why God would want a serpent, which was a symbol of sin, to prophetically symbolize Jesus. But that's why God told Moses to make it of bronze and lift it up on a pole. It doesn't really symbolize Jesus. It symbolizes sin being judged. And that's what Jesus was when he was lifted on a pole. At that very moment, he was sin being judged. And all of us who look at that will be saved. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, for our sake, God made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so that through him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the answer to Nicodemus's question. You can't enter the kingdom of God without being reborn, a spiritual rebirth. And that happens by looking to the cross and believing in that work. That's all there is to it. But folks, later on, when we get further into the gospel account, you'll notice Jesus will start changing the style of his answers to people when they ask him about the kingdom of God. Now, you would think that every time someone would ask him, he would just go ahead and tell them what he told Nicodemus here. Hey, you must be reborn. But instead, Jesus starts giving them answers that make them a little uncomfortable, such as, sell everything you have and follow me. 
That's not the same thing. Another guy asked, what must I do to enter the kingdom of God? Jesus said, obey the Ten Commandments. The guy said, I do. And Jesus says, well, if you've ever even thought about breaking one of the Ten Commandments, then you've broken the whole thing in your heart, so it's the same thing. And then later on, when someone else asked Jesus about how to get into heaven, Jesus said, be perfect like your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, at that point, even some of Jesus' disciples start getting a little uncomfortable. And one of them asks him, hey, Lord, if that's true, then how is it possible that any of us will make it? How can any man be saved? And Jesus says, you know what, you're right. It is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. See, people kept asking him what to do, as in, what religious action must I take? What form of works must I do to earn God's favor? And Jesus knew what was in their hearts, so he answered their questions literally. Oh, you're interested in earning it. Well, in that case, you sell everything you have, follow me, obey the Ten Commandments, not only in deed, but in thought and emotion, all the days of your life, and be perfect, just like God. Jesus was telling the truth. Is there a way to get to heaven other than looking to the cross? Yeah. Be perfect, just like God is, from the moment of your conception to the last breath you take on your deathbed. See, folks, that's why God hates religion. It's BS. It's fake. Look at the example that God gave the Israelites in the desert with the bronze serpent on the pole. God didn't tell them how to heal their wounds. He didn't give them a sacred holy water or anointing oil to heal anything. He didn't give them instructions on how to avoid the serpents. He didn't tell them to fight the serpents off or even kill them. Now that's interesting. Can you fight sin in your life to the point you'll never be a sinner again and earn your way into heaven? I don't think so. God didn't tell them to look up to Moses to be saved. Your pastor doesn't save you. Your priest doesn't save you. God didn't tell the Israelites to dip their wounds in water first. Water baptism doesn't save you. God didn't tell them to meet once a week and sing songs about the bronze serpent and listen to Moses preach a 40-minute sermon about the bronze serpent. So church attendance doesn't save you. He just said, put a bronze serpent on a pole, and anyone who looks at it will be saved. And Jesus said, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, in order that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And there is the famous John 3.16. It's quoted so often, folks, that it's become familiar to the point that the whole meaning behind it loses its impact. So let's look at these words real slow. Where it says, God so loved the world, the word love there, in the original Greek, it speaks of an all-consuming love in which the person who is doing the loving is completely given over to the object of that love. The Amplified Bible translates it, For God so greatly loved and dearly prized the world. The original Greek word that was translated world is actually cosmos. It's referring to the whole creation, the domain of mankind, God's whole creation. It says he loved it so much that he even gave up his only begotten son. His only begotten son. Ever had someone try to tell you that God had more than one son? Ever had someone try to convince you that Jesus and Satan were brothers? Not if John 3.16 is true. But the biggest impact of this verse are those three little words that come before his only begotten son. He gave up 
His only begotten son. You know, as a kid growing up, I used to think that God was actually splitting hairs and kind of cheating here. You know? God didn't really give him up. He resurrected him three days later. But eventually, as I was first getting into the Bible, Chuck Messler introduced to me the passages of Scripture that showed when the second member of the Trinity became the human known as Jesus Christ, it was a process that was irreversible. Even after Jesus was resurrected, he was still human. Now, he might have been in a brand new immortal human body that, I mean, you know, but it was still a human body. And to this day, Jesus is still human. He's still a man. The person that Jesus was before he became human is a person that he will never be again. And that made me read John 3.16 in a whole new light. For God was so given over and completely consumed with love for his creation that he even gave up his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. What's really amazing to me, folks, is that it was a mutual agreement. The father gave him up. The son volunteered. You know, folks, throughout the years, through evangelism and so forth, we've really unintentionally made accepting Christ almost a cliche. Do you believe you're a sinner? Yes. Do you repent of those sins? Yes. Do you believe Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins? Yes. Do you accept his death on the cross as payment for your sins? Yes. Bingo, you've been saved. You're now a Christian. But whenever your English Bible uses the word believe, in the original Greek, it literally means to trust in, to cling to, to rely upon. Those are present tense, active words that are continually active. So on the one hand, you don't just believe once and move on. This isn't a one-stop shop for fire insurance where you can purchase your policy and forget all about it. But on the other hand, whenever the English Bible gives us the words everlasting life or eternal life, in the Greek it implies that it begins at the moment of faith and continues forever. So eternal life isn't something you get when you die. You get it now. And this leads to one of the biggest debates among Bible scholars that's been going on ever since Christ first left the planet Earth. Some groups define the plan of salvation almost as though as it's a license to sin. Now, they would never call it that, but after you've heard their definition of it, that's exactly what it is, folks. They believe that since Jesus died on the cross to pay for all sin, that those who accept that payment are no longer held accountable to God, and they can do whatever they want at any time. They can lie, cheat, steal, murder. It doesn't matter. Jesus paid for it. They can do it and go to heaven. Well, they're missing the point. This group seems to have a problem distinguishing the difference between God's judgment and God's discipline. God's discipline has got nothing to do with the afterlife. God's discipline takes place right here, right now, on the planet Earth. It's something that God does to those whom he loves for their correction, for their benefit. It's not fun, but it's always done out of love. God's judgment has got nothing to do with discipline. God's judgment is about paying off a debt. It's about justice. When Jesus died on the cross and paid for our sins, he paid the penalty of sin. That involves God's judgment, God's wrath, all of that Jesus took care of. Something else, when you're reborn in the Holy Spirit, you're given a new heart. 
And that new heart isn't going to take the plan of salvation and use it as a license to sin. Those who do only prove that they haven't been given a new heart, they haven't been reborn in the Holy Spirit, and therefore they couldn't possibly be saved. I don't care how loud they said they believe Jesus died on the cross to pay for their sins, and I don't care how many people heard them say it. It's not a license to sin, and anyone who treats it as one isn't really saved. The opposite extreme is that salvation itself is something that can be received and then lost if the receiver doesn't hold on to it. They believe Jesus' work on the cross only covers the sins of a person's past. They believe all sins must be repented of first, and you can't repent of sins you haven't committed yet. So, once you're saved, all your past sins have been washed away, but from that moment onward, you have to be on your guard and keep yourself clean. And if you mess up, you need to confess that sin and repent of it and do it in a hurry, because if you die on a car wreck before you've confessed and repented of that sin, you're going to hell. Well, guess what? That's not true either. How many of your sins were still in the future while Jesus was hanging on the cross? All of them, folks. And God's outside time, remember? He knows the end from the beginning. Time is a physical property that he created, and he's not bound to it. He knows your whole life, every sin you've ever committed and ever will commit. And he also knows exactly how and when you will physically die. So your salvation isn't left up to chance. I've actually heard people say, whenever I die, I hope it's while I'm saved. Well, what's that all about? You're either saved or you're not. It isn't something that comes and goes. It can't be switched on and off. If you could lose your salvation, then Jesus wouldn't have used words like eternal or everlasting life. And don't forget that those words were used in the present tense. You don't get eternal life when you die. You get it now. If you could lose eternal life, then it's not really eternal, is it? Jesus also used the words reborn and born again. Once you've been born again, I don't know how you can become unborn. You're reborn in the Holy Spirit and you receive present tense eternal life. But on the other hand, what activates that isn't just a cliche statement about belief in Jesus and it's not a license to sin. Folks, these two extremes are not new. They were around in Paul's day. When he wrote to the Christians in Rome, he had to deal with those very same two extremes. Half the people saw salvation by faith alone as an excuse to get away with murder. The other half knew that that couldn't be true, so they went too far in the other direction. They were worried about losing their salvation and made demands about obedience as a prerequisite to salvation. And Paul had to contend with both of these extremes in the same letter because he knew both groups would be reading it at the same time. It was a challenge for him, and because of that, Paul's letter to the Romans is a lot of fun to read, because Paul keeps going back and forth trying to put out both fires at the same time, in the same letter. He starts off completely trashing the idea that being a good little Christian has anything to do with our redemption. He starts off by saying that everybody has fallen short. But since everybody falls short, then everyone is eligible for redemption provided in Jesus. And since Jesus alone is responsible for our justification then there's no room for any pride or boasting about how good we are. We're justified by faith, and faith alone. But then Paul takes a turn to address the opposite side of the spectrum. The Ten Commandments, the principle of what's right and wrong, we still follow that. We choose to take sides with that, but for different reasons now. Before, we were children being told not to cross the street without looking both ways. If we disobeyed, we were punished. But now we're adults in Christ. Punishment is no longer an issue. Jesus took the punishment for us. 
But does that mean we abandon the rule of looking both ways before we cross the street? Certainly not. Who wants to get hit by a car? But eventually, he describes almost on a medical level what sin really is. He says the wages of sin is death. Some people think that means you can lose your salvation. But all that means is that people who sin die. That's why everybody dies a physical death, even Christians. Paul brought up the body as the instrument of sin. It's in our DNA. We've talked about this before. And when we are reborn, it's a spiritual rebirth, not a physical one. We still carry the human body, and the natural function of the human body is to be an instrument of sin. It entered into our DNA stream through Adam, and it's passed on from generation to generation. It's a disease. It's a virus with no cure. There is no cure for the sin virus. The only way you can kill the disease, folks, is to kill the body that's inflicted with it. That's why all human beings die a physical death, even Christians. But the physical body, fortunately, folks, the physical body is just hardware. And the real you inside, the real you, is software. And the performance of all software depends on the condition of the hardware it's in, right? You take a program on your PC, run it in a superior PC, it's going to perform better. The software hasn't changed. But depending on how old your computer is or what model it is or how much RAM's installed, all of that hardware decides how the software is going to act. It's the same way with us. Our physical body, our brain, all of that is hardware. The real you is software. And when all of us are born, our software is a slave to the hardware that it's in. The hardware that we are originally installed in comes with the sin virus. The sin virus completely controls our hardware and influences the behavior of our software. But when a person is reborn in the Holy Spirit, that Holy Spirit is like new software that's downloaded onto your hard drive. Once installed, it quarantines the sin virus to your body only, so that the software, which is the real you, can be uploaded to new hardware when you die. And that particular function of the new software isn't accessible to you once you've had it downloaded onto your hard drive. It's locked under software administrator only. It's God's program. And he won't allow anyone but himself to access that part of the program. But there are additional features of this new software, and God does allow you access to those. It's what the New Testament calls the gifts of the Spirit. But I don't want to get into those. I just want to focus on one particular feature. The sin virus is now quarantined to the body only. Okay, now you have the choice to go online and download add-ons or updates. You do that through prayer and a steady diet of the Bible. The more add-ons and updates you perform for that new software, the stronger it is within your hardware and the better it works with your software. But don't ever think that the sin virus has been completely removed from your hardware. It's only quarantined. The primary function of the new software is to preserve your software for a future upload. When your hardware, your body, finally dies, the sin virus will be destroyed with it. And the software, which is the real you, will be uploaded onto newer hardware. Hardware that is brand new. Hardware that is virus-free. Hardware that is perfect. Hardware that is much more advanced than the hardware we're used to having. And that hardware exists in the kingdom of God. Let's get back to Jesus' conversation here with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Let's start where we left off. Well, well, let me back up a few verses so we don't lose the context. 
John chapter 3, verse 14, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. Jesus says, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, in order that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave up his only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send the Son into the world in order to judge or condemn the world, but that the world might find salvation through him. Let me interject, folks. Always read the fine print and put things in context. God didn't send his Son into the world to condemn it, but to save it. At least, that's why he sent him the first time. The second time God sends his Son into the world, it'll be all about judging and condemning it. It's going to be real scary, and I'm glad I won't be here. Verse 18, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Remember in our last session, we talked about how hell isn't really a place that we're sent, but it's a default destiny. As we grow up, we get the weird idea that when we all die, there's a good place for good people and a bad place for bad people. God rules over the good place, and Satan rules over the bad place. Well, that's wrong on several levels. First of all, Satan doesn't rule over hell, and will never rule over hell. It's a prison that God himself built specifically for Satan and his angels. And God didn't build it for human beings, good or bad. But it is our destiny by default because of our sin nature, which is inherited, not our behavior. We get the strange idea that when we're all born, we have a clean slate. And as we grow up, God makes two lists. A list for all of our good deeds and good intentions on one list, and a list of all of our naughty deeds and naughty intentions on another. And whenever we die, whichever list is longer, helps God decide where he's going to send us. Well, that's wrong. It's not about our behavior. It's about our nature. Our nature is inherited. It's imperfect and it's not curable. And God isn't sitting up there saying, I'll let you into heaven, but you, I'm sending you to hell. Well, God doesn't send anyone to hell. He only sends people to heaven. Those who are sent to heaven are uploaded there because their software was quarantined from the sin virus by the Holy Spirit. Those who don't make it to heaven aren't really sent to hell, but are bounced to hell by default because their software is incompatible with the hardware that's waiting for them in heaven. Heaven is protected under an awesome firewall. The sin virus can't get through. So if you want your software to be uploaded to the new hardware in heaven, you need to get the sin virus quarantines to your old hardware before it dies. Remember what happened with Moses in the desert? God didn't say, if you don't look at the serpent on a pole, I'll kill you. They were already dying. They were dying already. So all of us are hellbound by default. That's why Jesus said, he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This kind of disbelief in the original language, the Greek, it's an active verb. It's not passive. We tend to worry about the people who just don't get it. You know, they're confused or deceived, and they don't believe yet because they just don't buy it. They're not convinced. Well, that's not an active form of disbelief. That's actually a form of belief in progress. Their minds are still open to the truth, and they'll eventually get it when God wants them to. The word disbelief in this verse is active. These people aren't deceived into disbelief, but willfully choose not to believe for the reason that Jesus gives in the following verse, verse 19. Jesus says, The basis of the judgment lies in this, 
that the light is come into the world, and people have loved the darkness more than the light. For their works were evil. For every wrongdoer hates the light, and will not come out into the light, but shrinks from it, lest his activities be exposed and reproved. But he who practices truth comes out into the light, so that his activities may be plainly shown to be what they are, wrought with God. In other words, folks, all of us are infected with this end virus, but some people don't see it as a virus. Some people really love that virus and what they think it does for their hardware. Don't get me wrong, we all love it a little bit. That's one of the side effects of having the virus. But Jesus is talking about those who love it so much that even the knowledge of what that virus is doing to their system and what it will ultimately do to their system doesn't matter to them. Even the idea of a quarantine for the virus runs them off. And that's how John leaves it, folks. Jesus gave Nicodemus a lot to think about. And that's where we're going to leave it as well. We'll continue next time right where we left off. Until then, we're out of here.